Um, nice to see so many people. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm not sure I can answer some of the really difficult questions about genius, but at least I can raise questions and give you some idea of what other people have said about it and perhaps some of my own thoughts uh, along the way. Uh, let's begin with an Oxford connection, um, which is in the exhibition. It's rather a um, delightful caricature by Max Beerbohm of um, the proctor speaking to Dante in Oxford. And um, I think the caption is, Proctor, your name and college? <laughs> so it, it sort of hints at the difficulty of recognizing uh, who is and who isn't a genius. Um, how do we define the idea? Well, it's jolly difficult. Uh, I think it ha one has to be honest and say that there is no agreed definition. And I think we perhaps would be disappointed, to be honest, if there was a definition of what genius is. Um, the scientists and psychologists and various, obviously, artistic uh, people have looked into the question, but there isn't really a consensus. Uh, I think what I'll do is just remind you of a few geniuses to begin with. Um, Leonardo, obviously. Uh, Shakespeare, this is the first folio uh, in the Bodleian, um, which is in the exhibition. Mozart. Um, Newton. These are all, so to speak, canonical geniuses and people that there wouldn't be much dispute about in putting into this category of genius. Darwin, the young Darwin, around the time he came up with his theory of natural selection. And Einstein, uh, from the last years of his life when he was sticking out his tongue at some journalists, I think. Now, what do they really have in common? Um, I'm going to give you my definition. And by the way, I'm not going to say very much in this short talk about political geniuses and geniuses in fields outside the arts and sciences. I'm really going to stick to the more intellectual qualities of genius because I think otherwise the talk will get completely diffuse. But obviously we do speak about uh, evil geniuses like Stalin and Hitler and we speak about uh, political geniuses like Churchill and Napoleon and so on. So it's a, it's a complicated picture, but I, I want to limit it a bit. So arts and sciences is my focus today. Um, I would say it's probably fair to say that geniuses permanently change uh, the way that uh, humanity perceives the world. Uh, this, is, this is the really distinguishing characteristic. It has to be permanent. Um, there are lots of people who have a temporary effect, but genius really changes things for, forever, so to speak, and that is recognized widely. But if you're pressed uh, to be more precise, as I have been in writing about it, it gets quite difficult to, to, be, uh, to be definite. And I'll, I'll give you a, uh, a few more possible geniuses as Picasso. Um, opinions still probably differ about him. Uh, most painters would probably recognize him as a genius, but Picasso himself said in the 1950s, when I am alone with myself, I cannot regard myself as an artist in the strict sense of the word. And then this bit is important. The great painters were Giotto, Rembrandt, and Goya. So from his point of view, they were the geniuses. Um, Virginia Woolf, 
Uh, I've written a bit about in, uh, in, in one of my books for Oxford University Press on genius. Uh, she's often considered one by literary people, uh, but Hermione Lee, her biographer, who was obviously here in Oxford, um, wrote uh, in the biography um, of Wolf in 2002, not very long ago, Wolf's reputation in this country has always been extremely mixed. So again, controversial, not a fixed genius, so to speak. And finally, Stephen Hawking. Um, my father was a physicist here in Oxford, and uh, certainly uh, Hawking is a greatly respected figure amongst physicists. The public thinks he's like Einstein, I suppose, uh, an out-and-out genius, but my experience talking to physicists is that he's very widely respected, but he's not, he's not really considered another Einstein. Uh, so again, um, his, his status d varies depending on who you're talking to. Now, um, it's a highly individual and unique characteristic genius, but it does have a compelling quality. I mean, Darwin, his ideas are still uh, very refreshing for biologists around the world. People are working on them actively still. Same is true of Einstein. Uh, and obviously in the arts, Mozart, Shakespeare, and many others, their works are still widely performed way outside their original uh, cultures and countries. Um, contemporary geniuses may come and go, um, but I think this idea of genius will not let go of us. And I think the reason for that is it does transcend fashion, fame, and reputation. And it is the opposite of a, so to speak, a period piece. And we, we need that to, to uh, define quality in a, in a wider sense, in a historical sense. Um, the word actually comes from uh, Roman antiquity originally. Um, it's described uh, in, in Latin uh, to mean the, the tutelary genius of a person, a place, an institution, and so on. Uh, so it has a somewhat different meaning originally from how we now use it. Um, and it really acquires its later meaning only in the Renaissance and even after that. Um, this is Vesalius, the anatomist, in um, his great work um, from 1543, uh, which is in the exhibition as well, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, on the fabric of the human body. And inscribed here in Latin is a motto that is quite famous, um, genius lives on, all else is mortal. And this is 1543, this is about the time when we're starting to get the modern conception of genius coming in rather than the ancient Roman one, which is quite different. And the word, as you'll notice, is um, uh, ingenio, uh, the, if I can, well, you can see it. Ingenium is the word which is being used here, not the old Latin word genius. Um, in the Enlightenment, uh, genius really becomes, in the 18th century, how we, we conceive of it now, more or less. So, it's so to speak, Homer um, was not a genius before the 18th century. He was much revered, but in our modern sense, of genius. Uh, we have to wait until the time of Dr. Johnson, really, 
uh, in the 1750s and uh, Addison and people like that before we start using genius in, in the modern sense as somebody who through dedication can achieve great things. It's not God-given in other words. And I think Johnson's definition, though it's quite long, is worth, worth reading. Um, that's from 1750, from the Rambler, his periodical. Since a genius, whatever it be, is like fire in the flint, nice expression, only to be produced by collision with a proper subject. It's the business of every man to try whether his faculties may not happily cooperate with his desires. And since they whose proficiency he admires knew their own force only by the event, he needs but engage in the same undertaking with equal spirit and may reasonably hope for equal success. In other words, according to Johnson, but not according to, to the, the, the earlier definition, we can all potentially um, become geniuses. The scientific study uh, begins in the 1860s, a century after Johnson, uh, with uh, Francis Galton, who founded psychology, and uh, was the cousin of uh, Darwin. And uh, he's quite well known now for his work, Hereditary Genius. It's gone out of usage, but it's historically an important uh, volume. Um, uh, he actually called it an inquiry into its laws and consequences. Um, this is what he looked like, by the way, posing as a criminal in the 1890s, just for the fun of it. This is Francis Galton. But I think it's quite strange because Galton uh, did a great deal of research uh, examining the backgrounds, the talents, the status of hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals who were potentially geniuses. But he, in fact, hardly uses the word genius in the book. Uh, and there's no entry in the index. There is a lot on intelligence in the book, but there's very, very little on genius as such, even though he called it hereditary genius. Um, and in fact, I discovered that in the second edition, he says in the preface, I wish I could have retitled the book Hereditary Ability, because genius, uh, I was not using the term in a technical sense, and it's, it's people have misunderstood me. He said, um, in fact, genius, uh, there was not the slightest intention on my part to use this uh, word in any technical sense. I really wanted to express it exceptionally high ability. And then he says, there's much that is indefinite in the application of the word genius. It is applied to many a youth by his contemporaries, but more rarely by biographers who do not always agree among themselves. And I think that's quite nice. As a biographer I, uh, of a few um, potential geniuses, I, I can see that he has a good point there. Biographers devote enough time to a subject to really consider it from all perspectives, but they don't always agree on the status of their subjects. And of course it changes with time. Now, distinguishing talent from genius, um, how do we do that? Um, this is quite a tricky subject too. Um, I mean, should we, should we imagine that there is a continuum between uh, talent and genius? i.e. you become more and more talented until you become a genius, so to speak? Or is there a discontinuity? So that there are lots of talented people, but a small number of geniuses who are in a separate category altogether. Um, there are times when 
the term is used like that, but um, I'm suspicious of that. A physicist, for instance, do tend to think that Einstein is somebody very special as compared to Niels Bohr, his contemporary. Um, but uh, I think that's probably hard to justify, and in music, uh, Mozart is often regarded as somehow divine, uh, whereas Haydn, who greatly admired Mozart, is one of several composers who are admired. Is there a discontinuity in talent there? Well, it's useful to ask musicians what they think, and several surveys have been done, and the details don't particularly matter, uh, but this is from 1933. Uh, I think it's four American um, orchestras. They, the, the musicians were asked to rank these composers, and they were given a list. They were not asked to pick their own. And two popular composers of the time, Victor Herbert and McDowell, were chosen as, as reference points. Uh, and you can see they didn't do terribly well uh, in, the, in the rankings. They were given bottom rank by everyone. Um, now, uh, there are several other surveys as well, um, and they do tend to prove... I hope that's going to go away. How do I get rid of that? I'm sorry. Okay. I've probably tapped it by mistake. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let me just make sure I've got that right. The second survey uh, was done um, later in 1969, so things have changed a bit by then. Uh, 36 years have passed since the first one, but broadly speaking, um, you find Bach very high and Beethoven, Mozart and Haydn. Um, and I think Handel now appears in the list at number six. And that's an interesting fact, because in 1933 they didn't even put him in the list of 19 composers. He wasn't even considered a possible genius. It shows you how fashion uh, can change, even in, uh, much later after somebody's death. It's an interesting um, perspective on it. Uh, and then there's another survey of performance frequencies done in 1968. And this is how works, uh, how much works were actually performed, with Mozart now coming at the top, Beethoven, Bach following him, and Handel uh, still pretty high uh, at, uh, I think, position number seven. Uh, that's not an opinion, that's based on, on how many times the works are actually performed in a certain period. And I think this is quite revealing because it shows there isn't a discontinuity between genius and talent. Uh, the performance frequency simply falls steadily from uh, Mozart's figure of 6.1 right down to Tartini at uh, 0.2. There is no break in, 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 in the rankings showing that the people above it are geniuses and the people below it are, are just very talented. Um, now, another distinguishing mark of genius, uh, apart from the ones I've mentioned so far, um, is probably gradual preparation with sudden illumination, the idea of eureka moments. Um, perspiration with, uh, with inspiration. Um, this is another way of putting it. Um, and 
I think it's quite a nice comment uh, that a Greek poet made on the subject, uh, probably Hesiod. Uh, Before the gates of excellence, the high gods have placed sweat. Um, that's more or less equivalent, I suppose, to um, Edison's comment, which is much more famous, perhaps, that um, genius is 99% uh, perspiration and 1% inspiration. And there is actually a version by George Bernard Shaw who changed the proportion after Edison um, to, to, I think, 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. So already you see that people disagree about the precise proportions, but still uh, the concept is fairly common that a lot of hard work is needed combined with this rather more mysterious ingredient we call um, inspiration. Um, that's Edison around the time he made the comment, actually, in 1903. Now, Darwin, um, in old age, had something quite revealing, I think, to say about um, perspiration and inspiration. He was not so pithy as uh, Edison or as uh, um, Hesiod, but he said in a letter to his son uh, when he was quite old, um, he said to his son, I've been speculating last night what makes a man a discoverer of undiscovered things. And a most perplexing problem it is. Many men who are very clever, much cleverer than the discoverer, never originate anything. As far as I can conjecture, the art of discovery consists in habitually searching for causes or meaning of everything which occurs. Habitually, I think, is the, the key word there. This implies sharp observation and requires as much knowledge as possible of the subject investigated. So it's, it's, not, it's not as pithy as Edison, but he is saying that you have to work constantly um, if you're going to become a genius. And, and I, there is a comment by Newton, actually, who's asked how he came up with his theory of gravity, and he did say something very similar. He said, by constantly thinking on it, or on't. Um, so again, the idea is common. Um, and, and in the case of Einstein, he was working right up to his deathbed, even in his hospital, uh, and by the side of his bed after he died. His calculations were discovered right up to the end he was working. Now, there's no doubt that um, everyone I've looked at uh, fits this, this model. They do all work continually, um, and they're mainly prolific. Uh, pretty well all of them produce a lot. Um, just to give you um, a few figures, uh, Edison um, published or owned uh, 1,093 patents, um, which meant that he lodged an average of one patent every two weeks of his adult life. Um, Bach, J.S. Bach, <coughs> on average, <coughs> composed <coughs> excuse me, 20 pages of finished music per day, um, which is sufficient to keep a copyist occupied uh, for an entire lifetime, just copying out the parts. Uh, Picasso had more than 20,000 works. Um, obviously, some of them were quite minor, but uh, it's an enormous figure. 
240 publications by Einstein. And Freud, who I haven't mentioned much so far, produced 330 publications. These are, these are very uh, prolific figures. Um, inspiration, perspiration, a um, couple of musicians, uh, Elliot Carter and Aaron Copeland, contemporaries, had, had nice things to say, and I'll just tell you what, what they are, very short. Uh, Carter said, if there is inspiration, it's not something that comes at the beginning of the piece, it comes in the course of writing it. And I think everyone who's, who's a writer recognizes the truth of that. But Aaron Copeland said, um, you can't pick the moment when you're going to have ideas. It picks you. And then you might be completely absorbed in another piece of work. So it's quite a, quite a difficult thing to quantify. Now, uh, theories of genius, theories of creativity, uh, there are a lot of them. Um, I don't think, having looked at most of them in some detail, I don't think they work very well, but they still have interesting pointers, the, the, or some of them do. And I want to mention a couple. One is by a psychologist, uh, an American, uh, and the other is by an economist. Um, and I suppose it doesn't matter what they're called, really. Um, but they're both recent uh, academics. Um, and um, in the psychologist's model, um, he doesn't look for what is creativity. He looks for where is creativity. And he defines it, uh, and by implication, genius, obviously, um, as, so to speak, at the interface between the creator and a group of uh, critics or experts who have to uh, assess that creator's work. So it's, it's the interaction between the two that he, he, he regards as the definition of creativity. It's not something inherent in the, the person themselves. Um, and he, he says um, that if you apply that idea to Vincent van Gogh, it's quite uh, revealing. Um, because as we all know, Van Gogh died largely unappreciated. Uh, I don't think he had sold anything when he, when he died, perhaps one work. Um, but he was regarded as a, as a very strange artist. And now, of course, it's uh, quite, quite different. Uh, and the psychologist says in his theory, um, uh, in, in, in relation to Van Gogh, that Van Gogh's creativity came into being uh, when a sufficient number of experts felt that his paintings had something important to contribute to the domain of art. Without such a response, uh, Van Gogh would have remained what he was, a disturbed man who painted strange canvases. Now, I think this is an interesting model um, partly because it does show or explain to some extent why opinions change about artists and scientists and some become uh, geniuses or regarded as geniuses with time and others are not. Um, but it does uh, actually uh, disturb us in another way because we feel that we have inherent qualities which should not really need recognition by experts. But in practice, genius 
uh, does require that expert assessment. Uh, it's not something which is magical and which belongs to, to the creator. And uh, uh, you have to have this, this circle of cognoscenti who develop with time and become more interested or not, as the case may be, uh, in defining that person as a genius. Now, the second theory by The Economist is, in a way, um, easier to follow um, because it's based on the price um, of works by artists. Uh, and he looks at um, the works of Picasso and the works of Cezanne, and he compares the two. Uh, and he wrote a book uh, called Old Masters and Young Geniuses, uh, which gives you a hint of, of his theory. Um, now, this is the age price profile for Pablo Picasso. And as this economist points out, uh, his name is David Gallanson, perhaps I should say. Um, the highest prices for Picasso's works are paid when he was young. And that's still true uh, in his 20s. Uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon was painted around the age of 26. And that's, that's a peak in Picasso's um, the prices of his works. Um, now, there's a, a great uh, contrast with Cezanne, um, where the work actually gets more and more valuable with time. And in his, uh, when he's around 67, that's, that's I think, um, the point at which Gallison compares him with Picasso and says that there is a uh, tremendous contrast, that Picasso's works are much more valuable at age 26 than Cezanne's and the other way is true, the other way is, uh, around is true for Cezanne uh, when he gets older versus Picasso. And Gallanson tries to define two kinds of artist on the basis of this difference, the conceptual artist and the experimental artist. Um, and in his opinion, Picasso is uh, a conceptual artist and Cezanne is a uh, an experimental artist, and the way he, he distinguishes between the two is that um, conceptual artists like uh, Picasso, who, who uh, succeed very young, uh, are supposed to draw their ideas from their imagination, whereas experimental artists work from nature, um, and they, they plan their works carefully. The conceptual artists are using sketches, uh, preparatory sketches, and then they, they work swiftly, and then they sign the works. Um, and in many cases, his categories do work. Cezanne certainly didn't uh, work in the way that Picasso did from his imagination. He worked from nature much more. He did not use preparatory sketches. Uh, he worked slowly. And he often um, did not sign his works. Um, and according to this theory, uh, the conceptual artists burn out, so to speak, uh, quite young. Uh, their source of inspiration dies and they start to repeat themselves, whereas the experimentalists go on developing with age and get better and better. Now, I, I, I think it's a, a, it's a theory worth thinking about. The trouble is that Van Gogh doesn't fit it very well. Um, I mean, he, he, he isn't really a conceptual artist, which is what the economist Gallanson claims, because he did actually work uh, partly from his own imagination, but in later life very much from nature. And he did use uh, some preparatory sketches. So there's, it's a complicated situation. He's really a bit of both. 
And that's very often the case with genius. You find both the, the conceptual and the experimental. Um, I think the only law that really works for genius, and even this is certainly debatable, but I've dwelt upon it in, in a couple of my books, is this uh, law called the Ten-Year Rule. And I just want to tell you about that um, at the end of this talk, because I think the evidence is more conclusive and is quite easy to follow. Um, the Ten-Year Rule uh, was actually... Uh, first proposed by psychologists in the 80s, uh, a psychologist called John Hayes, suggested that um, you could define uh, genius in terms of um, taking 10 years of steady application in a field uh, before you made your first breakthrough. Um, and, or 10 years or more, but it's often about 10 years, and he started looking at a whole range of artists and scientists and also many others to see whether that rule actually applied. And he found that it did, and many other psychologists then looked at the evidence and agreed with him. I mean, it certainly does broadly apply to athletes, uh, concert pianists, um, chess players, uh, and, and, and sportsmen. Uh, and it's also found to apply to artists and scientists, as I now, uh, I'll now explain a little more. Uh, just to give you an idea of how broad-ranging it is, um, I've just included two extremely disparate works uh, to show you um, how, how uh, I think it works uh, for both, um, well, architecture, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, Christopher Wren's design of the Triple Dome, and a filmmaker, um, Satyajit Ray, the Indian filmmaker who's, who Oxford gave an honorary doctorate to in the 70s, and I've written a biography about him. His classic films, the Apu Trilogy, um, in the, made in the 1950s. I think it works for, for both Wren and Ray, and of course many others. And I made a little chart here to try and uh, get my point across uh, in case you're um, not familiar at all with this idea. Um, Christopher Wren's uh, first architectural uh, commission was in Cambridge in 1663. Um, and the great model of St. Paul's Cathedral dates from 10 years later. Um, Faraday... Uh, I've just chosen some exemplary figures here. Of course, there are many others I could have picked. The design of, or the understanding of the electric motor and the dynamo comes about 10 years after he first starts getting, uh, first starts studying physics. Darwin, um, the theory of natural selection, 1838, is about 10 years, or almost exactly 10 years after Darwin starts working on uh, biology in Cambridge. Einstein, it's very precise. Uh, Special Relativity uh, was published in 1905, and Einstein's first uh, uh, ideas on the subject come from a dream, a uh, sort of daydream that he had, a famous one, uh, in his um, teens uh, in 1895, when he was still uh, at school, more or less. 
And then I've included Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, because he may or may not be a genius, but um, I guess that that's something we could, uh, we could easily debate, given the importance of the, the World Wide Web now. But his first uh, web-based computer program uh, is about 10 years before the launch of the World Wide Web, when he was working at CERN um, as a physicist. Now in the arts, um, Shelley, um, his great creative explosion of 18, 19, 20, that comes 10 years later after he first starts publishing. Picasso, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon is just 10 years or 11 years after he first starts training as a painter in Barcelona. Hemingway, I think, is a fair uh, example. In 1916, he was publishing his first work in school magazines and then the Sun Also Rises, his first major novel, occurs ten years later. Satyajit Ray, I just mentioned, um, the Apu trilogy, the first film, Pata Panchali, was made uh, just over ten years after he first started writing film scenarios in India. And even the Beatles, I think, um, it's quite an interesting pattern because Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is widely recognized as a, a one of their most, if not their most important album, and that's ten years after Lennon and McCartney first start playing together. Now, uh, you might think immediately, well, what about Mozart? Surely he breaks this rule. Um, well, I think the New York Times musical critic once said it's a strange fact, but Mozart developed quite late. And the point he was trying to make is although he was a child prodigy, according to people who, who look at uh, the, the, um, how you define the masterworks of Mozart by the number of recordings there are by different artists of a particular work, uh, Mozart's first masterwork, according to them, is, is his piano concerto of 1777, K271. And that's quite late in his career. He was 21 by then. And he, he was 12 years into his, his uh, composing career, because his first works were around 1765, when he was very young. So in fact, he, he, he doesn't break the 10-year rule. It's, he's, it's about the same. It's 12 years in his case, a little more. And I think, having looked at scientists, um, only Newton really can claim to bust this 10-year this rule. I mean, Dirac and Heisenberg may be. There are one or two theoretical physicists. But Newton is quite exceptional uh, because Newton's Annus Mirabilis in Cambridge um, occurred after only about five years' study uh, in um, 1665. Uh, so there really is no possibility of claiming that um, he obeys the rule. And Probably the reason is that theoretical physics doesn't require the kind of years of grind that other sciences do. You don't, it's more, so to speak, conceptual than experimental. I mean, you, you have to have the ideas, but uh, you don't have to depend on a great body of knowledge like geologists and chemists do. And therefore, you don't have to spend so much time. You have to be uh, compensating for that by extraordinary brilliance and imagination. But the time is not required, the, um, the grind and the devotion that other geniuses have to put in. Now, just to finish, um, 
I think that some people might think this is a bit depressing. Ten years, do we really need that long? Must it, be, must it always take that long to become a genius? Well, yes, it is a bit discouraging in a way, but it's also quite encouraging that even the greatest figures like Leonardo and Mozart and uh, Einstein, even they couldn't cut through this uh, requirement. Um, there is always this long, gradual gestation, even with, with the most uh, amazing uh, figures and genius. Um, and I like Darwin's comment on, on, on himself here, uh, which you may know that um, he, um, he said in his autobiography that even his own father um, and his school teachers, needless to say, thought that he was a very ordinary boy, rather below the common standard in intellect. Um, so uh, it took him a long time to, to prove that uh, that was not the case. So I think Dr. Johnson had a good point, but he didn't mention the 10-year rule, of course, but he, he, he did say that you, that sufficient application, the fire in the flint, uh, but you, you could, if you put in enough effort, uh, you probably could become a genius. Um, but can you make a living as a genius? Uh, well, that's the last thing I'm going to show you from the exhibition, actually. Philip Larkin's Oxford Careers Service um, report. Uh, and um, the details don't really matter except for one thing. Um, this is 1943 when he was pretty young, early 20s, and they were assessing his future career. Um, and uh, I think somewhere in here, the careers advisor has written, uh, yes, advised him to stick to librarianship. <laughs> now, it's debatable. Is Larkin a genius? Well, the jury's out, I think, still. But he himself uh, obviously had this day job and thought he'd better stick to it. And he said much later in life, and I'm quoting now from, from the exhibition catalogue, um, in 1979, Larkin said, I could never have made a living from writing. If I tried in the 40s and 50s, I'd have been a heap of whitened bones long ago. So uh, some geniuses can make a living out of being a genius, but depending on whether you think Larkin is or isn't, there are quite a few that, that couldn't. Uh, and I'm afraid Mozart probably was, was, was an example of somebody who couldn't. Admitted he died very young, but uh, he, there, were, there were many who, 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 who did not make much out of their brilliance. Well, I'm happy to take questions, but thank you very much. <laughs>